0: pushkin
1: the most innovative companies are going further with t-mobile for business the pga of america is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with ai coaching tools and 5g connected cameras aaa is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics and the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at t slash now. a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply nerd wallet finance smarter what if ai could help your business deliver mission critical outcomes with speed
2: with ibm consulting your business can design build and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business.
1: Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create.
2: I mean, it angered people. It angered people more than the stuff I had, been doing on Letterman or the thing I called, we called a sitcom called Get a Life. It, it angered people. And Adam and I both went into our shells. We just went into, you know, I, it, we still had to work. We still had to find things to work. But there was a, if there had ever been any passion in creating something different, that killed it in me. I think I still, uh, bring something different to whatever I do, but actually creating something and trying to further this type of comedy that I do. I that that movie killed it.
0: That was Chris Elliott. I'm Sam Fricoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Chris Elliott has made a living out of making us laugh. Whether that be writing and performing on Late Night with David Letterman throughout the 80s, memorable performances in films like Groundhog Day and There's Something About Mary, or his cult classic sitcom Get a Life, he's kind of done it all. Growing up in New York City, he came from a family of funny people. His father, Bob Elliott, was one half of the legendary comedy team Bob and Ray. They frequently appeared on Johnny Carson. In turn, Elliot, with his wife Paula, created a funny family of his own. Both Abby and Bridie, respectively, have built careers out of making people laugh. Most recently, Bridie has made her directorial debut with Clara's Ghost. It premiered earlier this year at the Sundance Film Festival and is now in theaters in VOD. Here's a bit from the trailer.
2: If there's someone here with us, please make a noise. Any noise will do. What? Oh, God! Did you hear that? Something's with us. Do you know anything about the woman who lived in this house? She was the crazy one, right? Crazy how? They sent her to a mental institution. I've been seeing this woman around. She seems to go wherever I go. Maybe you guys could be friends. I think that
1: would be weird at this point. Let me in.
2: God, 20, so I'm sending you poetry.
1: They're all making fun of you! Stop making fun of me!
0: In my opinion, Clara's ghost works because it's determined to be vulnerable and open about its characters, their flaws, their insecurities, their shortcomings. For the next hour, Chris and I uh, tried to abide by that framework. We talk about the highs and lows of creating in this field. The often very painful process of making things that people will consume one day. It is not so glamorous, and you may find his frustrations, his sadness, hell, my frustrations, my sadness, to not be entirely dissimilar from your own. There's more I can say, and uh, more I'd like to say, but... This is unequivocally one of my favorite conversations I've had this year, on or off microphone. It's given me personally so much to think about, and uh, I hope it does the same for you. So, finally, here is Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott. It seems we're both in a similar state of mind right now.
2: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I think we're going to be able to recover. We have coffee. We're okay. Good.
2: Just let everyone, we're hung over. Yeah. In no, case but, nobody caught on to that.
0: I, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> but if you
2: say it, then I think it's yeah, socially acceptable. It is socially acceptable. I have no problem saying it when I am. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> that is where I'm at right now. We had a screening for Bridie's movie last night. And um, I'm a little bit, on the East Coast time still. So I didn't start drinking my bodily time about three in the morning is when I started drinking um, in actual time. It was one, I guess. But um,
0: I like that you're cataloging the sort of time changes. I, I'm and trying to
2: figure out why I am so hungover at this point, why I had such a hard time getting up this morning. I realized, well, OK, I'm 58. I'm, you know, I can't I can't pound them back like I used to, even though I still do. And, uh, and also the time change does screw me up a lot for yeah. some reason now
0: Let, let's chalk it up to time change 58 <laughs> an amalgamation good. of excuses that's
2: great and, and we should have a couple of Bloody Marys here just, hey, if just your, in if case if
0: Beowulf wants to provide um, uh, I'm more than willing <laughs> okay, to accept great. you and me both pal <laughs> <laughs> so on on Bridie's film um, I've seen it a couple times oh wow I think she, she did a great job oh that's so nice to hear and um, you know I, I know it's been a long time coming and, and, and the main thing I want to get into to, to lead with is that there is so clearly uh, an autobiographical bent to it mm-hmm. and I've heard you describe in other interviews saying it is an exaggerated version of yourself mm-hmm. my
2: question is how
0: exaggerated
2: um, at times very exaggerated and at other times in the movie, not that exaggerated um it's a movie about the family dynamics of a family of entertainers where the mother is not an entertainer but everybody else the two daughters are and and my character the dad is and that is certainly autobiographical um and you know the ribbing that goes on it takes place all through the course of one night like a long day's journey in the night or who's afraid of virginia wolf and um we get increasingly uh drunk and uh surly with each other the performers do and um it's great because it starts surly so right it just
0: gets even more and more right you're like you it starts and you're like god could they get more assholeish towards each other, right? No, and we you
2: guys do. We get we, the alcohol, I think, and the length of the evening fuels fuels that assholeness to to each other. But the um, the brunt of a lot of the barbs is the mother character played by my actual wife Paula, and which I think is sort of a, a common thing in families, a, a thread where the mother kind of always does, you know, get a lot of ribbing and, mm-hmm. and takes it. Um, and in this particular movie, it's actually a, a ghost that sort of gives the mother some, uh, I guess, confidence by the, by the end. It's a, it's, it's a kind of movie where you don't really learn anything at the end of it or at least the ending is a question mark. What, what did we learn and, and what are – is this just going to happen again tomorrow night?
0: See, to some people that is either going to be um, a great sales pitch or like what are you talking about? Right, right, right. I think it's fine that it can be left like that. Yeah. You have uh, said in the past that you've made a a kind of career out of making fun of yourself. Mm -hmm. And looking back at your career, this seems to be maybe the most indicting Mm -hmm. sort of representation of yourself. When you're filming this, you're doing it at your actual house, right? Shot in our actual house. And it's with your actual family. and, And I have to imagine, like... Where is the distance that you're creating in that moment of like, okay, this is Ted Reynolds. Right. And I'm Chris Elliott. Mm -hmm. Is is it possible to create
2: distance? There wasn't a lot of distance other than tuning, you know, (laughs) turning the volume up on my assholicness. There wasn't a lot of difference. I am an actor who is at the last – you know, third of his life and the last part probably of his career. I'm semi-retired, I would call myself right now. Um, Like any actor, I think I I carry a certain amount of bitterness and (laughs) luggage around with me. Ted Reynolds carries an awful lot of it. Um, And in a way, it was kind of cathartic to be able to act that way and get some of that out. And uh, I know Bridie has said That the whole experience for her was cathartic. The whole it was almost uh, like a therapy session for the family in a sense.
0: Do you guys have those kind of conversations about career and and working through that luggage?
2: Um, Yeah, because they've they've seen the ups and downs in my career, and they've seen when I've become morose or depressed when the phone has stopped ringing or when I'm not in a creative mode at all. And I think it was always important when they were growing up to talk about that and allow them to see that this is a business where that is uh, intrinsical to what, you know, uh, your experience in it. And, and so they – when they went into the business, they knew – and they and they also knew it's a harder business on women than it is on men but they also knew there were going to be times when they were you know just very depressed and not not uh feeling fulfilled in any way but the best thing about this business i remember always telling them is that you don't know what's around the corner and that actually might be uh, unsettling to some people. But to me, that's – it's almost like you know, not knowing what a package is on your birthday that's all wrapped up. And, and you can go for a long time not working and then suddenly you get a call from somebody and suddenly you're working and having a, the time of your life. So,
0: Well, I want to go back through some of these things because okay. – your career, you've had a, a pretty winding one, I think. I am thinking, what age do you have children? 25, I guess, Abby. I was 25 that, that or
2: 86. 86, yeah. So, so I was 26. You, I was 26. Ha- you
0: get the Letterman Show, you start working on there in 1982, I think February of 82. Uh,
2: yeah, I was 21 when I started working there and turned 22.
0: So when you're on the Letterman Show, then. Around 26, Mm -hmm. you're a staff writer there, you're performing. Mm -hmm. What is your balance like between being a new parent and then also having this incredible opportunity with Dave?
2: It all felt like I was playing at being an adult. It all felt like. And, and a lot of that was because the minimums for writers was a nice salary. So I was able to settle down at a very early age. I'm the youngest of five kids. Everybody else had gotten married, had kids. And for me, it was just sort of handed to me that, OK, I have enough money to buy a house. I can uh, get married. I can have a baby, have two babies. I can send them to school. I can do all that. But I was so young that – it really. I was talking to Paula about it. It really felt like wow. We're back then. We were just kind of playing house. We you know, bought furniture, set up a little bar you in our house. You were doing things you were told you're supposed to do. Yeah, and the the things my parents did, you know, and and the things that my older siblings were doing. But but for me, it was just it. it it didn't dawn on me till later that I I wasn't an adult. I was a kid.
0: Did you find that you were happy in that period?
2: Yes. Working for Dave and living in New York City and pa- Paula and I sharing an apartment. She, Paula worked at Letterman. That's where I met her. Uh, walking down through Central Park in the morning, going to day to that show, being allowed to go on television and do something crazy once a week. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was the time of my life.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. It's certainly a uh, pleasure to... uh, uh, Certainly a... Excuse me,
2: just oh. one second. Uh, pardon me, is, uh, is there something I could do for you, sir? Oh, yes, I think there's something you can do for all of us here, Mr. Uh-huh. Mr. Talk Show Host. Uh-huh. All right,
1: um, what, what, what is your name, please? Oh, just call me Mr. Concerned Citizen. Oh, okay. Uh, apparently you have a problem of, of some sort? Yes, I have a problem, and so
2: does everybody else here. I'm talking about the conspiracy. I've been trying to tell people about this for weeks. I'm talking about <laughs> Connie Chung's super <laughs> committee of... Excuse me. I'm talking about the memos that go
1: from NBC. You have to listen to me. You can't do- No, no,
2: I have to hand... Up- most of it to Dave Letterman and Merrill Marco and Steve O'Donnell and all the writers there that supported me right from the start. It was a very small staff and I didn't go to college but I had been a goofball in high school and suddenly I was allowed to be that in an office setting in 30 Rock and get and, paid for it and get, paid for it mm-hmm. and get recognition for it. Um, suddenly there were people that were calling themselves my fans, <laughs> you know, and, uh, I had no fans in high school, <laughs> but I was doing the same crap that I was doing up in the offices. And that, you know, that's how I sort of moved into on air stuff was just sort of entertaining Dave up in the office or, or the writers before I became a writer and, and, um, the sort of persona I developed, I developed up in the office with Dave mm. and then he let me do that on TV. Do
0: you remember a particular moment? and working in that show where it
2: seemed to God, I think I'm actually doing this. Well, I think this is going great. (laughs) I, I've never been a fan of myself. I don't all, I'm hard on myself. I'm definitely hard on myself. So I can't say that I've, I, there was ever a moment that I'm, I thought I was doing something. Well, I do remember when I was still, I was actually still a runner, which is what I was hired to do on the show and getting stopped on Sixth Avenue and having somebody ask for my autograph. And I thought at the time, uh, well, yeah, these are hardcore fans of Dave's and if you you rolled Dave's desk down Sixth Avenue, somebody would want its autograph because they would recognize it. But then as that happened more and more uh, with me, I realized, oh, I was building an audience and I guess I was doing something that resembled talent. (laughs)
0: You know. <laughs> For some reason I'm, I'm reminded of that scene in Annie Hall And he's in New York And uh, he's like stopped On the street by like these two guys mm-hmm. And they're like You're
1: uh, the, on uh, the Johnny Carson, right? Once in a while, you know, I'm, you know every What's your name? I'm, I'm, uh,
0: I'm Robert Redford here. Come on Alvy Singer. who's nice. To,
2: nice. To, thanks very much for everything.
1: Hey, what? Oh. This is
2: Alvi Singer. I,
0: fellas, you know, this guy's on television. Hey, Alvy Singer, right? Am I right? Give
2: me a break, right? hey, break. Jesus. This, this my...
0: guy's on television. Oh, I need the large polo mallet. Who's drink. on television? This guy on a Johnny Carson show. Fellas, what is this? A meeting of the Teamsters? Hey, what you program? Know what? Can I have your autograph? You don't want my no, autograph? No, I do. It's
1: for
0: my girlfriend. Make it out to Rob. Your girlfriend's name is Ralph? It's for my brother.
2: I'll be singer! You really are be hey, singer? This, this is, is R.B. Singer! It's, I'll
1: be singer over here! All right, all right, yeah, yeah, it's all right, fellas.
2: Jesus, what'd you do, it's come right. by way
0: of
1: the all Panama right. Canal?
0: I'm in a bad mood, okay? Bad mood? I'm standing with the cast of The
1: Godfather. You're going to have to learn to deal with it. Deal? I'm dealing with two guys named Cheech.
2: Yeah, I remember one time, and again, I... I may have already been uh, – I, I was promoted from runner to PA then to a uh, writer. But all through th- those positions, I was on the show. But I remember one time getting stopped on the street by a guy who, who said, you're Chris Elliott, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, I hate you. <laughs> and, and, and I – my response right away was thank you. That, Just out of instinct? I, out of instinct. I, I think I agreed with him. And I, but I, I just said, uh, yeah, no, thank you. And, and he said, no, I don't think you understand. I don't like what you do on TV. I hate you. And I said, no, I heard you. I get it. I'm, I'm saying thank you to you. And, and he kind of walked perplexed behind me for a little ways and then said, I guess you're all right. <laughs> so I think you earned his respect. So I must have earned his respect.
0: But also, you have to imagine, you know, let's go back in time. What is that guy thinking about? He's like, I'm going to approach this person I do not know, and I'm going to say, hey, your
2: life's work, I don't like it. Well, you got to give that guy some credit, though. He I wasn't coming up.
0: I mean – I give him credit the same way I give a crazy person credit. Right, right, mean, right. It's right.
2: insane. right. I guess I guess it was, but and maybe he was having a bad day, and he just wanted to let me know. Yeah, you know that he. I like didn't that like that he me.
0: clarifies it too. He's like, I don't think you heard me. Yeah, like he no, doubles he, down. On he the doubled
2: bed. down on it because I said to him, "Thank you." you I, I, him. I was I was gracious and said, "Thank you, thank you," and he said, "No, no, you you didn't hear me. You didn't get what I'm saying. I, I just, don't like you." It is curious. <laughs> I
0: wonder what response he wanted you to
2: have. Um. I think he probably just wanted to ruin my day, like his day probably had been ruined. Same thing. But but getting recognized is a weird thing. And I knew, you know, my dad was in the business, and he would get stopped on the street a lot by uh, by his fans. And and but I remember like going on a date in high school, and we were walking through the theater district right around intermission time, and there was a bunch of people standing outside smoking at some theater and we were walking w- walking through the crowd and I, re- I had done nothing. I had done nothing on TV. I had done nothing anywhere else. But I remember somebody pointing to me and out of the corner of my eye, I remember seeing the finger like very close to my face and hearing them say, that guy's somebody. Who's that? That guy's somebody. Mm. And, And I remember thinking, well, maybe they think I'm another actor, but I think it was just sort of the way I was carrying myself, the way I was walking, the, maybe it was a confidence, maybe it was, I'm, I, I'm not a people person, so maybe it was me trying to dodge eye contact with anybody, <laughs> which most celebrities try to do, and maybe I was acting like a celebrity before I was one.
1: Mm.
0: Have you always uh, not been a people person?
2: Yeah, I, I think I've always been, you know, I, you know, like right now, you and I are in a very, very small room here. Tiny. And, and it's just the two it's of us. Box. It's a box. It's just a box, but I am more comfortable right now than I would be out in the conference room out there with people floating in and out and right. talking to people. I, I'm just – it's it, – I well, I so guess far, it's an insecure thing. I
0: think so far you yeah. sound like you're doing fine. I, yeah. I, I don't
2: think. Uh, I'm on a lot of beta blockers right oh, now. So. Really? Is that true? <laughs> that actually is true. Oh, okay. I've got, I deal with depression pretty heavily and, and uh, uh, anxiety and panic attacks and all that. And it's usually when I'm, you know, around a number of people. You know, I, I'm not a party person. When did that first start? Oh, I'm sure it started when I was a kid, you know, I'm sure when, you know, uh, I mean, I hated school. I hated, you know, the I hated being around a lot of people. You know, I think that's something that my best friend Adam Resnick and I have in common without us ever really talking about it. We're just not we're kind of loners even though when we're together. Mm-hmm. It feels like this. It feels like, oh yeah, okay. The the rest of the world doesn't exist. It's just us, and we have a great time together. But
0: you guys are unified by your disdain for other people. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's not, things. and
2: it's not disdain. It's sort of, I, I don't know. Appetite. I guess with some people, it's disdain. Yeah. It's sort of like the the way the Coen Brothers look at people. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I I you know can see the the value in that person, but. Um, I also want to make fun of him. I
0: I wonder how does that play with, you know, you are in show business and and going, you know, by the end of the 80s, you're more and more on Letterman, but it it seems like based on what's going to happen next in your career, you are ready to move on and do something else. But how does that, how does like not wanting to be around people work in an industry where you're Kind of required to to be around people. It's exhausting.
2: <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, it's it's people That's don't. That's the re-
0: honest answer I was hoping
2: for. Well, but it's true. I, when I shoot something, it's work, and you have to learn your lines, and you have to you know hit your marks and do all that. But then in between shots, when crew people want to come up and pl- and talk and joke and do all that t- stuff, yeah. you have to do that too. Because you don't want to be an asshole and be in character and sit off to the side and not talk to anybody, you have to be social, yeah. and that is exhausting at the end of the day. It's always like really incredible when you
0: hear the Daniel Day Lewis stories, where like he's Lincoln and he's being like carted around, right, and he's like treating people because like, he, he, he's Daniel Day Lewis, so it's right, okay. right. But if you're not,
2: if you're not like Michael Jordan level, right, it's like you can't really do that. But I'm, I'm also impressed with the actors like christopher Plummer, who i've heard you know will just you know he'll be having a cocktail and a smoke with you and then suddenly they'll say action and he's the character yeah i think that's how you live till 90 like, yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and somebody was telling me that they did a play with him and he was you know backstage you know before his entrance it was just you were talking to christopher Plummer, and then suddenly his cue came up he walks out and he's suddenly this character and yeah. and he and then he does his lines he, he has a kind he walks of off that is. Like, yeah you don't find that yeah incredible. yeah that's that's one in a, you know, a thousand but that i really admire that the way i am i think when i work not that i'm genius i, I didn't mean that i meant that no, yeah, that, that i don't i only turn <laughs> i only turn it on you know when the camera's on and then when the camera's off i'm i'm myself but being myself like i said is exhausting mm. Exhausting for you or others? <laughs> well, I'm sure. I'm sure if you ask my wife, it would be. She'd say it's exhausting for her. But uh, no, it's exhausting for me. You know, I, I. But again, I. I so appreciate people. I guess I have that kind of personality where people want to talk to you and they want to. You know. Um, joke around with you and they want to tell you things from their live story and all that and and I think that's a but I think that's probably a good attribute it's a good attribute
0: These like, people want to share their life stories and,
2: <laughs> well, uh, but know, I'm the, but I think that's probably uh, sort of uh, different and no and in the back of my mind I'm thinking I just wish you would shut the fuck up so I could just <laughs> relax just sit here and relax for five minutes before I have to act again. God, I'd like uh, to know what the hell you're thinking during this interview. Well, what do you think after that? <laughs> I think seriously. All I'm doing, I'm looking at you, and all I see is a big bloody Mary. <laughs> That's all I see—a talking bloody Mary that <laughs> that is calling my name. Um, let's get to good life. Okay, the show has had
0: quite a reappraisal of sorts. I think more and more people seem to like it and mm-hmm. talk about it these mm-hmm. days than when it came out in
2: 1990. <laughs> Stand in the place where you live Now face now Think about direction Wonder why you have it now Stand in the place where you were Now face now Think about the place where you live What do you remember about making it at that point? Uh, it was not a pleasant experience. It, it was the network hated the show. There was some internal uh, conflicts with some creative forces on the show, but that's it, as polite of an answer as you can. I, I just can't uh, go into it any further because it's so long ago and it's water under the bridge. And I'm like, okay, that happened, but when. Get a Life came around. The idea of me doing a sitcom was a great opportunity, but it was also I knew and Adam Resnick knew that it had to be an extension of what I was doing on Letterman. Mm. And what we did was we did a pilot that was much more mainstream than the actual show ended up being. But the pilot got the show picked up, and then we made this kind of adjustment with – The tone of it. So there was some sleight of hand there. There was definitely a bait and switch. And and I'm – you know, I said it sort of the year it was on the air um, that, yeah, I can't totally blame Fox because this is not what we promised them the show would be. What were those conversations like with executives? Were they like, hey, um, the show we bought – right this is not quite lining up I don't think they could uh, articulate it that clearly <laughs> oh. <laughs> I think they, I think they just knew they didn't like the show they right. didn't realize that they had been sold a, a bill of goods when you know I was kind of pitching it as, which was not wrong as like Dennis the Menace grown up, you know, like a, if he had never left home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I also added in, you know, that he's kind of a, this man-child and character will learn something from his simplicity and, <laughs> and like Big, like Tom Hanks in Big. And, uh, it's
0: just like Big and Tom uh, Hanks. Yeah, exactly.
2: And they they did not get that. They got, you know, an, a sociopath, a, a nut who, you know, was living with his parents and his parents were also crazy and they got the tone of the show was like green acres it was not a real show it was a in a sense a parody of sitcoms and that was true to what i had been doing on for dave for 10 years before and uh, You know, their big thing was that they wanted real moments. They wanted, you know, real emotion between the father and the son and the mother and the son. And you could not do that on Get a Life. (laughs) You just can't. You could not do that on Get a Life. They wanted
0: tender tidbits.
2: Yeah. They wanted – and for Fox, which was – well, no, it's getting me hungry. But for Fox (laughs) – you know which you know they championed edgy things back then. Mm. You know, so not to champion get a life. Uh, I think it was just that they just didn't understand it, and and it it angered them. And much of what I've done in my career has angered people, like that man who walked down the street and wanted to tell me that he hated me.
1: Mm.
2: You know, I I think it it's anger- is that intentional. Yeah, I I it's not. I think it's a uh, subconscious thing. I don't think I. You know, everybody wants to succeed. Everybody wants to, you know, be liked in this business. But I – Definitely uh, starting at Letterman, you know, realized that I, I I don't have to really worry about the audience. <laughs> I have to worry about what's what's making me laugh. And and at Letterman, it was I have to worry about what's making Dave laugh. And, and many times the audience wasn't laughing, but Dave was. And so I knew, OK, this is I'm, – I'm doing the right thing here. Get a Life was doomed from the start because the network – uh, it angered the network, and you know they they brought it back for a uh, season two, but only to uh, you know kind of fill a slot, and then they canceled us halfway through that season. So. Mm. Did you see some of yourself in that character? Yes, I mean the original uh, concept, because I'm the youngest in a, in a fam a in five. The fa- uh, five kids was. And I've never been taken seriously by my siblings, so I think. Well, I don't talk to any of them now, but um, (laughs) no, I talk to a couple of them. But uh, I think that was the the first thought that popped into my head was, oh, a a story, a show about a kid who's the who's still not taken seriously, um, and who's thirty years old and is still considered a kid. That makes sense. That's the most wholesome version of you know, right. life. I mean, then it evolved into this kind of crazy Dennis the Menace guy, and who, and then there was a little bit of Lucy in it, you know, of uh, somebody who wants to be famous, somebody who's trying desperately to to do, <laughs> come up with a scheme to become famous, and mm. and uh, that certainly was stuff I was doing on Letterman, and that definitely is me. If your question was, do I see? Any of me in Chris Peterson or in the Chris Elliott persona on Letterman, yeah, I I wanted to be famous, you know, sure. And I went about it in kind of a Lucille Ball sort of way, <laughs> way you know, and just – Which is kind of ingenious. And thing. then and then when it, things weren't working, this sort of seething anger would come out of my persona, right. <laughs> which – Gave a glimpse into who this guy was. You know, maybe he is dangerous.
0: The seething anger, I think, is the the thing people keep coming back to. Right. In some way. This may be a silly question, um, but the desire to be famous. Why do you think you wanted that?
2: Um. I, I'm like the only thing I can think of is that everybody wants to be loved and and being liked or loved by strangers is a powerful thing, hmm. you know, to I mean, it I think it's probably why a lot of, you know, people go into politics, you know, it's just you want, you know, to include as many people as you can into your world, even though I'm not a people person, knowing that they're out there is that they're available, available options, and that they're they're out there uh, that that's gratifying to me. Yeah, and and gives me a sense a little sense of security, even though my career has never been secure. I've never felt, you know, it's funny. A lot of people have, you know, said that I'm I'm like a real uh, I don't know, like a, a a brave performer. Like I have I, – I will take chances. I will take risks. I will do all that and I never saw myself that way. I always thought I had this kind of safety net of not having to be good because that's my act. So and certainly that started on Letterman where i would come out with lame running characters simply to get on tv and that was the joke mm-hmm. back then but it was also very true it was also very true and i and I, and but it was funny because it was true i i i'm looking back on it now i think you're right i i think i at the time thought oh this is this is my this is my safety net i don't have to be good mm. and people are going to laugh at it and and uh, what did your father think of your work? I think in the beginning he was uh, just not sure what it was. He, I remember we did a. Um, an his or, humor was more buttoned up, straight. Lips. It was, it was, and it, but also still kind of fringe hmm. humor. I think that's something that I definitely have. Had in common with him, and that my daughters have in common with him, and and that is maybe a conscious thing—not to be part of the mainstream, to be different. And um, uh, but I do remember an article in People Magazine, and they—he had never said this to me, but I, he quote—they quoted him in People Magazine as saying he didn't understand what I did, and, but he was happy that I was doing it and happy that people you know were responding to it, but he he didn't get it.
0: Did you guys ever have conversations? No.
2: No, we never talked about comedy. My dad, even when he was on Get a Life, I mean, maybe we would talk about you know the lines, coming up with a better line here or there. But we never, around the dinner table, there was never talk about comedy. It wasn't like Clara's Ghost*, where right. where those characters are Engaging. so immersed in it that they have to—that's all they can talk about. My dad, I think, if anything, was slightly embarrassed by the fact that you know that's what he did for a living. And I, I certainly have been, you know, about what I do for a living embarrassed. You've been embarrassed. Oh, absolutely. I know it's hard to believe when you see the embarrassing things that I do, but my biggest fear in life is being embarrassed. It's, it's a nightmarish fear to me is either saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, whatever it is, that is embarrassing that that scares the shit out of me and yet people think I'm brave because I go out there and I do these terribly embarrassing things mm. <laughs> um, but I, I, But in terms of comedy I don't think my dad you know, he it, there was never like, you know, when you say a line Chris, always give it three beats before you do the final blow off you know, it, there was never any he didn't think in those terms Did he think about career at all? if he did it wasn't you know he had a broadway show which i think was the pinnacle of the bob and ray's career they were in a couple of movies they were always on the radio and they did like the tonight show they did dave when i was working there and all that but uh, it wasn't an ambitious attack on, on show business it was more like and and they had a similar to to myself they had a a career that Never reached giant heights, but was a very respected contribution to the entertainment world and still is. People still come up to me and talk about my dad. Well, in
0: 1994, Get a Life is Done, you have two things happen to you here. You've talked about it a fair bit, but you uh, make a movie called Cabin Boy. Shortly after that, you're on SNL. Mm-hmm. There was a wonderful article that came out about Cabin Boy mm-hmm. on the Ringer a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really, I thought such a beautiful piece, and um, you and Adam Resnick are both are both on the record about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to not go over some of that material, but I, I well, am, well, yeah, it's fine. I'm you know here's
2: here's a quote. I may end
0: up in tears, but uh, well, look, go ahead. That's okay. Here's a quote in the aftermath of making Cabin Boy. You said it made both Adam and myself want to hide. I don't think I've gotten out of that mode exactly. And that's a hard mode to be in when you're in show business.
2: Yeah, and it's it's doubly hard when that's your personality to begin with. Um, so even if Cabin Boy had been a huge success, I still would have that urge to hide. It was not a success. It was vilified. It was – I mean it angered people. It angered people more than – the stuff I had been doing on Letterman, or the thing I called we called a sitcom called Get a Life, it it angered people, and Adam and I both went into our shells. We just went into you know I it, we still had to work, we still had to find things to work, but there was a if there had ever been any passion in creating something different, um, mm. that killed it in me. I think I still. Uh, bring something different to whatever I do, but actually creating something and trying to further this type of comedy that I do, I that, that movie killed him.
1: Cabin Boy. They're coming. It's the story of a boy and his love affair with the sea. This moron got on the wrong boat. He never dreamed where the winds of fortune would blow him where the spirit of adventure would hurl him or where the hands of fate, come on over here honey would grab him these pipes are clean
0: I'm interested I don't know if you have a memory like this but making a movie is so hard mm-hmm. and so painful already before it's released Right. it's just hard Right. it's a painful process the edit is painful Yeah. not to even mention the production and the writing before it right I am interested when the movie is coming out sort of that opening weekend you and Adam are very close and I have to imagine seeing people's responses to something that's already hard to do
2: mm-hmm.
0: it must have been painful and I wonder what what did you guys do like did you guys just like sit in a room together and just be like god damn what happened here
2: that's exactly how we felt we had we were confused by the whole thing but any everything you said about making a movie and it coming out is true but there's also a bit of an excitement usually when a movie is about to be released that you're you're in but there wasn't with this for us because we already knew that it was going to be panned and we we knew it was going to be a hit to our careers and to you know making our yearly nuts you know it, it was going to hurt us and our families and um, it was horrifying. It was a horrifying period. My wife could not even bring herself to watch Cabin Boy uh, she saw it for the first time five years ago mm. um, because she knew how devastating it had been to us. Maybe it brought Adam and I even closer. I don't think that's possible. We never, we were never angry at each other about it. We, we, you know, we, we joke now and then about how. You know, people were asking, "Why are you doing that accent?" And and you know, even I'm sure Adam like thought, "Why? Why, why is he doing that accent?" But at the time, for some reason, I thought I had to. Do, I had to for that character. And uh, um, but we never blamed each other for anything. Um, there was a bit of a bunker mentality, I guess. And we tried a little bit after that to work together and to do a couple of other things. And then we realized. We're better off as best friends who love each other and will to the ends of time, but uh, we probably shouldn't work together because uh, anymore because we what we come up with is is not uh, is not commercial it's not it's not going to help you know our careers so we haven't worked some, together since Cabin Boy even though he's my bestest friend in the world we talk on the phone every day I see him we text it's a strange thing
0: I, I, I've never heard anything like it mm-hmm. I've never heard anything like it in terms of someone being a best friend and so clearly being on paper a good collaborator mm-hmm.
2: it seems we were like, of one mind I mean right. Adam and I have the same exact mind And we were raised in. He was raised in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I was raised in New York City. But when we got together, I it was like a my he was my brother suddenly because we, you know, we were closer than brothers because we we just had this you know, the same exact tastes. Our references were all the same. They still are. Um, He still says, "Have you seen this on Netflix? You you should watch this. Watch this guy and doing this, and I'll do the same with him." And it's all. What makes him laugh makes me laugh. And I think he actually is like one of the most brilliant writers, if not the most brilliant writer I know. And and I'm not, you know, I think most people that know his work would agree with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, he, he would later, you know, work on the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in that piece that I mentioned, mm-hmm. there is some clear regret he has and some some amount of remorse he has because he feels like he may have fucked something up for you.
2: Well, I think he feels that way. I, I've done, I've tried over the years to tell him <laughs> that there was nobody else that could, I would have wanted to direct that and that it was not his fault in any way, shape or form. And um I actually think that the bit of cult success that this movie has now that people are sort of rediscovering it or looking at it and experiencing it in a different way than they did when it first opened is all thanks to Adam it's all thanks to um, he's never directed since but it's it's he never wanted to direct to be, to begin with but I think he had uh, a great talent for it and uh, again for for writing and you know we've always said that that movie, there's absolutely nothing attractive about that movie. Maybe Melora Walters, but there's no actor in that movie. There's no movie star in that movie. It's an, it's visually, you know, challenging to watch it. And and then the comedy, it, it's not like the comedies that were out at that time, that which were kind of like straight Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler sort of comedies. That uh, that was what people were expecting from something that, produced by Tim Burton that was called a comedy. Mm.
0: Did it force you to reorient yourself in terms of what you wanted?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I suddenly I I I was naive in the sense that I thought, oh, maybe I'll be able to do another movie, you know. And and to this day and it's in that article, it's absolutely true, Adam, and I both don't really understand why it stuck around in people's minds for so long as being so bad, and became kind of the template for a bad movie, mm-hmm. or the prototype, or what people refer to as you know a cabin boy. You know, was was what it was called for a long time, and and that's a well, Dave's Oscar bit didn't help that. Dave's and Dave also you know would bring it up a lot in a self deprecating way. It was always to make fun of himself, but he I don't think he realized how much of a knife in the gut to um, both Adam and myself that that was the worst thing for me once was seeing Letterman uh, Dave used to you know the show used to do uh, you know Halloween costumes with kids and the kids would come to a set you know dressed as something say trick or treat and then the joke was Dave would give them some shitty gift in their bag not candy you know like maybe a ladle of chili or something like that and uh you know, one one Halloween season I was just watching it and some kid came to the door and then the gift Dave gave him was a VHS of Cabin Boy. You know? <laughs> and, you know, the audience just roared, you know, because, yeah, that's a really shitty thing to give somebody. Um, but Did you it, ask him it, about it? Uh, no, because I know it never came from a malicious or – and if, if, if he knew how much it hurt us, I think he would feel horrible. I think he would feel – terrible that and not realize that you know because it was all him making fun of himself you know I was in Cabin Boy you know it's it's him joking about himself in a movie and his acting ability and actually I think you know at the time you know I thought the movie pretty much ended after his scene but (laughs) but uh, you know Dave has been nothing but uh, a rock support wise for me and and for Adam and um, so I know he wasn't doing it to hurt us
0: so once the film comes out you get on snl mm. you have a year at snl where it, it i don't think it makes sense for you to be there you already right. had a sitcom and you're already working at a late night show and, I, and i've heard you say in the past that snl should really be someone's first job yeah that they get or at least one of the earlier jobs yeah absolutely um you move on and and do more and more tv and film right at that age you you have
2: how many kids two two kids Yeah, you're in New York still well that's we were living in LA we moved out there for Cabin Boy because we thought you know sure that's gonna be I'm gonna be doing movies now we moved back after Cabin Boy opened and bombed and one of the reasons to get me back was to do Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. it was like okay that's a reason to move back um, it was a hard season for me I was terrible on the show I didn't Really understand before I went there what that process is. That you know, you write for yourself and you compete with other people there. It's even if there's camaraderie, it's still you're trying to get as much airtime as you can, and you want to get. And when I went there, you know, there were stars were still there. Adam Sandler was there. You know, Chris Farley was still there. David Spade and Norm Macdonald and all these guys. They already were stars, but they were still competing with each other for airtime. And I just felt uh, I don't want to do that. Competition to begin with with me is an alien thing. I hate it. I think that's why I like the fact that I'm considered original or at least considered different because Mm -hmm. there's less competition that way
0: Mm -hmm. for me. me. Um, So in the late 90s, early 2000s, what did you want for
2: yourself? This is going to sound shitty, but I, I just wanted to make a living. I wanted to be able to continue to make a living. That doesn't um, sound shitty. But because I was, you know, late 30s, entering my 40s, and I wanted to be able to send my kids to school. I wanted – so I started doing more mainstream things, you know. Um, everybody Loves Raymond. Um did jim belushi's show a couple of times i i did a couple of pilots nothing got picked up and then i stopped trying that you know i i just suddenly thought no it's i'm i should just be a special guest or a weird character that comes on here and there because that's a hard process going through the pitching process and then writing a pilot getting a pilot produced you know and actually made and I was never really happy with any of the one, uh, them that I did. Adam was not involved with any of them, and it, they they didn't feel right. It didn't feel like oh, this is a Chris Elliott show. Right. This is, yeah. It didn't feel
0: like something you needed to do.
2: Right, right. And and I understood why they weren't picked up, why the network said no mm. to them.
0: When you're talking about doing commercial work, it sounds like yeah. I, I get that you're obviously grateful for it, and you have kids, and at yeah. some point. You know, it's a job. Right. And you do have to put food on the table. Right. And um, which is kind of what makes the whole cabin boy thing such a scarier proposition than just like, oh, it's a negative review. Right. Because it jeopardizes your future work. And my kids. Right. (laughs) And what, you know, how, how you, you know, take care of them. Yeah. But at the same time, it also sounds as if the creative side of you, the side of you that got into this for the reason to like make art which is i think
2: part of why you got into this. Yeah, maybe. Maybe i'm wrong. No, i i you might be right. I just i've never thought of it in those terms, m- making art. I know i've i tried to do something different and i fell into that. It wasn't really the goal. The goal originally was to be a working writer or actor in the business. And I sort of discovered my voice. Adam Resnick certainly helped develop my voice. And when I discovered that that voice was different, then I kept pursuing that until Cabin Boy. And, and, and then I, I sort of thought, OK, I know I can be funny in um, a role that somebody else writes that somebody else might be able to do better. But I know I can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can be Murphy Brown's agent.
0: And you totally you know. have been. I guess my real question is, has it creatively satisfied you? No, of course not.
2: And, and again, I'm so grateful for it. But the only times in my life that – I and Adam has said this about his brilliant book, Do not, uh, Will Not Attend, which is like one of the funniest pieces of work. And I – Woody Allen, we were talking, as a hero of mine and I grew up reading – his books, but Adam's book to me is funnier than any Woody Allen book I ever read. Mm. And but I think when I was I, I tried writing some books and Great. and I and I realized that the I, w- I was getting books published because they knew I could get on talk shows to to publicize them. That's the only reason I was getting books published, not because I'm a good writer. And um, but 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 they. Actually were the most creatively satisfying things to do because I had nobody over my shoulder saying, you know, you can't do that. You know, you got to be more like this or you have to be more like this guy or you have to do something like that. I, I I could just sit and try to make myself laugh on my computer. Mm. Um so that that was I was create I was satisfied creatively there. Um, I was you know satisfied at letterman you know because again he sort of let me do what I what I wanted and uh, some things hit, some things didn't, but the overall attack on my career back then was to creatively satisfy myself and him, Dave. Um, and when I wrote books it was really just to satisfy myself. Mm. I guess I'm just. <laughs> you're, you're hating me now. You liked me when I first walked in, oh, and now no. you think I'm a self-absorbed. Definitely not. <laughs> I am that. Well, no, no, <laughs> sure. I didn't say I didn't say you're not that. But that's not what I was thinking <laughs> at all. No, I'm... I mean every. I think every actor is. You know, you you have to be. You know, is it required. I, I think it is. I mean, uh, as d- much. As it's caused me mental stress and maybe disorders, it's also benefited me to hate myself, to think what I do is actually not very good. That has actually –
0: Because it's motivated you?
2: Yeah. And like I was saying before, it's sort of a – this weird thing that, oh – People like it even though uh, I hate myself. You know, it's, it's, it's a strange place to be. But I also know that a lot of actors are like that. <laughs> and the more just acting I do with just actors and I'm talking to them and they're exhausting me in between takes talking to me, I, I realize, oh, I have that in common with a lot of people. Mm. I, I certainly had it in common with Dave. And I think Adam has the same thing. I think we have that.
0: How old do you know?
2: Fifty-eight. Is there a part of you that wants to, at fifty-eight, at sixty,
0: hate yourself less?
2: There's a part of me that doesn't want to cash in on it as much as I have in my career. There's a part of me that maybe wants to try to uh, fix it a little bit in my mind, so that I, you know, can be a little healthier in mind and body but I don't think I'll ever change I don't think that will ever change and that was advice Dave gave me and not not about hating myself but he, the only advice he ever gave me was just don't, don't change what you do just you know stay true to what you do and I haven't been able to do that completely all through my career um, and largely due to Cabin Boy but it's still deep down in there with me Mm. And so I think even when I'm 65, I'm still going to hate myself.
0: Well, can I say something? You you suggested that I I like you less now. And I know maybe you were joking. (laughs) I was joking. I know you were joking. But I actually was on the verge of saying something. Borderline complimentary. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's
2: really going to get uncomfortable for me.
0: Well, so I'm going to avoid the compliment. And instead, I want to just put something out here. And again, we don't know each other.
2: And we may never see each other again yeah but I feel like uh, you know me I feel like I feel like you and I could be friends I feel like e- even if I wasn't doing this and somebody introduced us at a bar and we were talking or whatever we would become friends um, and I feel that with certain people I, I can feel that with certain people especially people I feel it often with people that I have absolutely nothing in common with. <laughs> That, you know, oh, wait, I can be – we can be friends. Like up in Maine, I – you know, there's a carpenter who comes and does work on my cabin up there for me and I love the guy and I can – you know, and he sits after work and we'll have some beers and we'll talk and it's not about show business. It's about Maine. It's about the weather. It's about anything else but show business and I consider him a close friend. Mm. But I I feel that with you. I feel like, okay – We're different, and I'm twice your age, but we're, I don't know, simpatico, I guess is what I'm saying, which is – I I also – the opposite happens with me, maybe more often than than this, where I just walk away going, ugh, (laughs) hate that guy. That's
0: the not-people-person
2: part. Right. But also
0: that's life. It's like you meet a lot of people and you think, oh, oh, good Lord.
2: Yeah, exactly. I got to get out of this quick. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I, you don't know how many times I've been in a conversation and I've texted my wife, this guy won't shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know.
0: Well, on on the, the vaguely kind thing, it's not so kind. It's more of a, an idea. I know Cabinvoy has put a – has done something to you. Mm-hmm. I don't really have the vocabulary to describe what that is exactly. Mm-hmm. I have some ideas, but I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. But I wonder—you are fifty-eight, and you said you're on, like, you know, the back end of your career, right. back end of your life, right? And I guess I'm just thinking out loud. I wonder—is there a way to move on, to push forward in a way that feels... Honest and and productive. I don't know if there is. I don't know you well enough, but it seems to me, as someone who's seen a lot of your work,
2: that it'd be a real shame if you didn't. Well, that's um, sort of what I'm dealing with right now. <laughs> Sorry.
0: What are you thinking about?
2: Well, I have um, you know, terrible depression. I'm trying to be treated for it.
0: Um, hey, it's okay.
2: Never done this i apologize profusely i you know but
0: we have spider-man tissues here which is as embarrassing i as know
2: I, I know well they smell like spider-man that's the problem <laughs> I, I you know i'm i do uh, ect which is um uh shock therapy um like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but they put you under now for it. Um, But it's because I'm dealing with everything you just brought up. I don't know. It's uh, hard for me not to feel like Things are over, but I'm, you know, I'm trying. I'm trying not to. When's this interview over? is the big question. <laughs> um,
0: well, I'm sorry. It, it's hey, I'm I just. Uh, it's fine. You don't need to apologize. I um, had my mother on um, <laughs> about a year ago, a year and a, <laughs> a half ago. Uh-huh. And uh, the last 20 minutes were just m- me crying. Right. And in the edit, you know, I try to, like, keep stuff in, but, like, I'll be honest. i yep. I never told anyone this on the show. But right. But I, uh, I cut, like, 10 minutes of the crying out because it was like, you know. Right. right. People only want to hear so much of me crying to my mom. Right. But then, I ended up, you know, then people started writing about it. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like you don't know what people are going to like. You don't know. It's just so strange.
2: Well, I feel like so lucky to have had a career that most people say, you know, what the fuck does this guy have to be depressed about? You know, and they're, they're right. And that's, you know, part of the guilt that goes along with uh, depression.
0: Yeah. But that question of what does he or she have to feel sad about does nothing for the individual who's suffering right so it's you know I hope um this has been okay
2: you've been great you've been great I am so sorry that this
0: (laughs) you really don't need to apologize you really don't and um it's been an honor having you and I'm excited for people to see uh your daughter's film And um, I believe much more for you. Thanks. Chris Elliott, thank you. I want to thank chris elliott not just for this week's episode but for being who he is to me our conversation was uh, really a reminder that if we can't be honest with each other brutally painfully honest then what the hell is the point of all this i think we like to believe that we're alone in our suffering i think it's easier to isolate ourselves I think that's why we don't talk about these things out loud. It's why we don't share them in public. It's why we barely share them with the people we care about and love. But I think a willingness to share can make this all a bit easier for us. It doesn't always have to be so hard. For those interested, Chris co-stars in a new movie now out in theaters called Clara's Ghost. It is directed by Bridie Elliott, who has put her um, heart and soul into this film. She really has. It's every bit as raw and discomforting as most family gatherings tend to be. It's also very, very funny. You can find out more about the film and Chris at our website at www.talkeasypod.com. There, you'll also find our episodes from this year with folks like Alan Alda, John Cho, DeRay McKesson, Chloe Zhao, Paul Dano, my father, and um, many, many more. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Ian Chang, our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week.
2: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional
0: awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now
1: at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.